0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I was in junior high. Our class went to New York City uh, for a, a trip of sorts, right, and the idea was you go to New York City, see all these sites, but as you were traveling between places, there was all these little street vendors there that you could buy junk from, right, you could buy uh, fake watches, and so all of my classmates would come back with these watches that didn't say Rolex on them, they said Rolex, you know, or Rolox. isn't that a, yeah, anyway, But they would come back with these watches and, uh, you know, sure enough, they would buy cheap knockoff watches from these street vendors, these Rolex watches that were floating around my middle school for weeks afterward. And of course, it was all too good to be true, right? They would come back and these watches would stop working within a week or two weeks or whatever. And it just reminds me this morning, this is what we do. We want good things for less cost, don't we? We settle for cheap imitations, items that on the outside look to be authentic, but truthfully, we know that they don't actually function like the real thing. This morning, as we come to our text this morning, we're going to be introduced to the real thing, the real deal in Jesus Christ. We're going to be introduced to a Messiah who claims himself to be Messiah. And as each character is introduced to him, they're invited to this belief in the real thing. Not the Rolex watch, but the Rolex, the real deal. See, here's our big idea this morning. Witness starts with seeing the real Jesus. And we're going to see this first as John the Baptist bears witness and others start to listen to him in verses 35 through 42. We're going to see kind of a movement happen there. And then we'll see another movement in 43 through 51 where Nathanael sees the real Jesus Christ for who he is. And all of this is going to weigh in on us, and we're going to see that we need to be worshipers before we're witnesses, that we need to have authentic views of Jesus Christ before we're going to invite anyone winsomely to follow Christ as well. And I can't impress this moment upon us enough that right now is the moment for us to be spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Right now is the day of salvation. Right now is the moment that we should be preaching and speaking to those who do not know Jesus Christ. There's never been a more pressing moment than right now. And so we turn to our passage in John chapter 1, verse 35. I'm going to read verses 35-42 through 42 as a part to our first point. John the Baptist bears witness, and others listen. Listen in this morning in John 1:35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said, said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour or 4 p.m. One of the two that, who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, See, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb again. We saw this last week where John the Baptist was testifying to Jesus. And this is what we saw in our passage last time in, in 129 where John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He told us that Jesus was the Son of God in verse 34 because of what he witnessed at Jesus' baptism. That is, the Spirit of God descending like a dove on Jesus and resting on Him. And the voice of God speaking to a John the Baptist and saying that this man baptizes with the Holy Spirit. But this time, however, our attention shifts away from John the Baptist and onto these two disciples. It's kind of like a a movie, like a continuous shot. They've followed John the Baptist, and now they're following these two disciples, and eventually they'll follow Andrew, and they'll follow Peter, and they're hunting down the effects of this rippling witness as it spreads throughout this Uh, scenario here in fact we'll be introduced to a number of jesus disciples today all of which have to give account for who jesus is through their various titles that they attribute to him and so when we see in verses 37 through 39 andrew and this other disciple follow jesus and they start by simply doing just that they follow jesus this is kind of creepy right they're just kind of following him wherever he goes and finally jesus turns around and says what are you doing right Why are you following me? It's kind of the stalker method of discipleship, right? John is inviting us into this kind of double meaning. Surely these men physically follow Jesus, but it serves as a metaphor for for us to kind of follow Jesus in his footsteps. See, discipleship is really just that. It's just following Jesus and what he does and how he lives and what he says. And so Jesus' invitation in verse 39 has more implication than they could know. And so what they do is at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they go and they spend a day with Jesus. It continues into the evening. And apparently these few hours were enough to convince Andrew that John the Baptist was right. As we look at verses 40 through 42, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. Andrew's famous for being the person who brings people to Jesus. And notice that's what he does in verse 42. In verse 41, he told Peter that this was the Messiah Messiah is this kind of super spiritual word that we throw around that simply means anointed one. Uh, There was one person who was going to come from God, that he would be a very special person in God's purpose for the world. He would be a king of David's line. He would be a prophet like Moses. He would be a, a priest to his people. And this person was to bring peace and prosperity to his people, his nation Israel. So if you found the Messiah, it was good news. That was a big deal. See, you would get in on the ground floor of the new coming kingdom that was coming, right? You would be part of the entourage of the Messiah. Wouldn't you be cool if you did that, right? You could be his disciple and you would be the one to benefit from his kingdom even more so than others, or at least so people would would think. But when Peter meets Jesus, he gets more than he bargained for. See, Peter comes to see Jesus because he was supposed to be the Messiah, but Peter may not have anticipated that the Messiah had a purpose for Peter. Notice the renaming that happens here in our passage in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's a word that means rock, right? That's what you call your dumb friends, rock, You ever meet somebody who wants to give everybody a nickname? It's not a good thing. Right? You don't want to be given a stupid nickname. But Jesus sees Peter, and he has a purpose for Peter that he's inviting him into. He says uh, later on in Matthew 16, he'll say, You are Peter. You are rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. See, Jesus is inviting Peter to this new identity, this new reality that starts with him, with knowing Jesus. See, Jesus names him Cephas, an Aramaic name that means rock or Peter's, the kind of uh, Greek transliteration of it, and He's inviting him to, to trust in this. See, you and I are nothing more and nothing less than what Jesus calls us to be. You and I are nothing more, and we're nothing less than what Jesus calls us to be. Our passage presents us with this issue of witness. It's the witness of John the Baptist that initiates this witness of Andrew and his other friend and the witness of Peter. And each subsequent character in our passage responds to Jesus uniquely. Each of them has this interaction with Jesus, and they respond to his claims and and what he says about himself. For Peter, specifically, the call to follow Jesus means the crafting of a new identity. Listen to what Don Carson writes. He says, here in John 1, the focus is much less on what this name change means for Peter than on the Jesus who knows people thoroughly and not only sees into them, but so calls them that he makes them what he wants them to be. See, for Peter, Jesus not only calls him, but he also will shape him to become the rock that he wants him to be. He calls Peter, he renames Peter, and he sends Peter to this new identity, to this new purpose. It's that way for all of us, right? All disciples of Jesus are invited into this same experience. If we are to follow Christ, we must be willing to take on His agenda for us. All of our other purposes must be subsidiary to Jesus' purpose. I don't know if you ever read Elizabeth Elliot's uh, Through Gates of Splendor. It's a great book. It tells the story of her husband's death uh, as a missionary. And she describes her husband, Jim Elliott, in this way early on in the book. It says, While at Wheaton College in Illinois, Jim limited his extracurricular activities, fearing that he might become occupied in non-essentials and miss the essentials of life. He refused requests that he run for several offices on campus. He did, however, go out for wrestling, explaining a choice, his choice in a letter to his mother. I wrestle solely for the strength and coordination of muscle tone that the body receives while working out with the ultimate end, that of presenting a more useful body as a living sacrifice. This God knows, and even though he chose to allow it to be strained, the motive was for his glory and the faith he honors. I love Jim Elliott's heart. He's saying, I only do this for the honor of Christ. I only do this extracurricular thing because I think it brings greater honor and glory to Jesus. And so many of us, we, we take on the extras of life. We pack our schedules so full and so crammed that we have no square inch of movement in our schedules that we've uh, just kind of crammed them so full that we have stopped thinking about the glory of Jesus Christ in the midst of those schedules. See, truly, you and I are nothing other than what Christ sees in us and forms us to be. And every purpose we endeavor to take under our wing, everything we set our hearts and our minds and our time and our money to, should have that endeavor of the purpose of Christ. See, at the end of time, we will be nothing more and nothing less than this. But our passage doesn't end here. And still, there's much to be revealed to us in these early verses in the book of John see our passage still has more for us in verses 43 through 51 in these verses we see that Nathanael sees Christ for what he is look at verse 43 with me the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee he found Philip and said to him follow me now Philip was from from Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And descending on the Son of Man. Excuse me. See, Andrew calls Philip in verses forty, verse forty-three. I know this is confusing for our text. It says, uh, "The next day, Jesus decided to go to, Phil, Phil, uh, to Galilee, and he found Philip." But if we look at the NASB, it translates it a little bit more naturally. The next day, he—that's Andrew—decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, "Follow me." See what? the text is actually probably portraying to us is that Andrew grabs Jesus and takes him to go see Philip. See, Andrew, once again, is at the center of this idea of witness. This is important because our passage is now full of individuals bringing others to the person of Christ. And look at these verbiages that we see throughout our passage we see words like behold come follow come and see the text is constantly inviting us to come and see christ for ourselves but andrew brings philip and jesus calls him to come and follow and philip then in turn invites nathaniel in verses 44 through 46 look at philip's witness in verse 45 we have found him of whom the moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael raises this natural objection. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Now in John 21, too, we find out that Nathanael's from Cana, a town about five miles away from Nazareth, right? So Cana and Nazareth are just like sister cities right next to each other. There's kind of this rivalry. We might think of it like Troy and Piqua think of each other, right? And so Nathanael has some kind of spite in his mouth about this whole situation. But notice Philip's response. He simply says, come and see. There's no argument. There's no uh, discussion to be had. There's just an invitation to come and see Christ. There's no apologetic to be made. There's just an invitation for him to come and to see the person of Christ. And so Jesus, in verses 47 through 51, addresses Nathanael's concern. Notice what Jesus first says to Nathanael. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. When we think about this like a first century Jewish person would, we hear kind of a play on words that's happening here. Because an Israelite would have been descended of a person named Jacob in the Old Testament and when we went through jacob or the book of genesis recently we saw that jacob was one who was a deceiver right and so when he's saying he's an israelite and whom there is no deceit it's you're you're an israelite you're a descendant of israel without the jacob you're without the deception of jacob you're you're more honest it's a, a truly a, a remarkable compliment that's paid to nathaniel but nathaniel's confused by this and his response is as if to say I'm sorry, do I know you? Sometimes I'll be walking through the supermarket or someplace else and someone will see me and I'm I'm looking back at them thinking, do I know this person? Do they know me or how does this work? You ever had that experience? You ever walk through a, a supermarket and see somebody that you think you recognize that you're not sure? I've waved to a number of people that I don't actually know. They think I'm the creepiest person in town Probably. Nathaniel has this experience with Jesus. The truth is that Jesus knows Nathaniel better than he knows himself. Jesus responds to Nathaniel Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, you and I, we're not really invited to understand the intricacies of what's happening here. We don't know what was happening under the fig tree. We don't know necessarily what Nathaniel was going through or what he said in those private moments. But by the nature of his response, we assume that he saw the lordship of Jesus Christ played out in front of him. Look at his response. He attributes these things to Jesus. And verse 48, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He starts off with this string of titles. And he says, Rabbi, you're, you're like the teacher. You're the one who comes and instructs me. And then he goes on and he says, you're the, the son of God. You're truly one of greatness. Like in the Old Testament, a son of God could describe an angel. It could be a, describe a preincarnate view of Christ. It could describe lots of other things. But for Nathaniel to say it here is, is quite significant, but he kind of puts the cherry on top when he says, you are the true king of Israel. He's saying you are the Messiah. The throne rightfully belongs to you. He sees Jesus as the rightful descendant of David, the one promised by Isaiah and the prophets, the king who would come and rule over all the earth. For Nathanael, who had no deceit in him, who was an honest man, to say these things about Jesus Christ was significant. But Jesus isn't content to just leave him in this understanding. See, right now, Nathanael sees Jesus as a political authority. And Jesus says, no, I'm much more than that. See, if Nathanael's just thinking about politics, Jesus wants to redirect Nathanael's thinking. In fact, Nathanael's thinking too small. Jesus tells him he'll see greater things. I saw you than just the I saw you and The historical uh, knowledge that Jesus had about Nathanael was not significant enough. And so in verse 51, Jesus corrects his thinking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we have to unpack this a little bit, don't we? That phrase, truly, truly, it's amen, amen. It's the word we get amen from. It means something like truly or or rightly, correctly. Jesus is repeating it to draw attention to what he's about to say, the truth and the veracity of the thing he's about to speak. And when he says that the angels of God will ascend and descend, it's drawing our attention back to Genesis 28, when Jacob, the deceiver, had finally pulled his last straw. When he had finally deceived his brother. He had stolen his birthright. He fled out into the wilderness, and he was fleeing to his uncle's house for safety. And as he stopped that night, he put his head down on a rock for a pillow, and he drifted off to sleep. And that night, God gave him a vision of angels ascending and descending on this ladder that its base was on the earth and its top was in the heavens, so that angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder that Jacob saw, and God gives him the promise that he would be faithful to him and to all his descendants. And it culminates to this that Jacob wakes up, and in Genesis 28:17, he was afraid. and he said, "How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven." See, Jacob, in his rudimentary understanding of religious things, attributes this place to this kind of special, unique meeting with God but he's not recognizing that he was the unique meeting place with God, that God had bestowed on Jacob all of this blessing because of his grace and his mercy. See, by using this image, Jesus is unabashedly saying he is the Jacob's ladder of the New Testament. He's the new Bethel. He's not simply a rabbi. He's not simply an all knowing prophet. He's not simply a king. Jesus is the gate of heaven. And this nod to Genesis 28 speaks of two things God's promises to Jacob and his presence with Jacob. See, Jesus is this promise from God, he's the word. Grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ that God speaks to us through Jesus. He reveals himself with all of his fullness through Christ. Just like he revealed himself through Jacob, he's revealing himself through Jesus in John chapter 1. And it's not just that he speaks and then walks away. He's present. He's tabernacled among us. He's dwelt among us like John 1 says. So just as Jesus, or god showed up in the life of jacob and gave him promises and presence. now god is showing up in all of mankind through jesus christ with his promise and with his presence see for us this morning jesus is a better jacob isn't he Jacob, you had to be descended from him. You had to be of his physical lineage. You had to be one of the 12 tribes. You had to be a a part of his clan. You had to be, uh, had the flesh and blood and the heritage and everything else. You had to be a, a law keeper. You had to do all of these things to be right with God. But now, through Jesus Christ, all we need is faith. That's it. We've all been given access to the gate of heaven through Jesus Christ. See, Jacob stood at what he thought was the nexus between heaven and earth. And he attributed it to just being Bethel, this place where God seemed to be. But God was interacting with Jacob in such a way to show him that his promise was Jacob's true hope. Now, Nathanael is invited to see that Jesus is the new Jacob's ladder. He's the go-between between heaven and earth. But How? How's that possible? You and I, we do all kinds of things. We do stupid things, right? See, he laughs, he knows. Apparently, Jason and I are the only ones who do stupid things. So stupid thing I did this week. My wife, I needed some chapstick, and I asked her for some chapstick. I shouldn't even tell you this story. I don't know why. So I go into her purse and I get what I think is chapstick and I put it on my lips, and it's got like tint to it. So I'm walking around like J. Edgar Hoover, you know. We do stupid things. We violate God's laws. We, we break His rules. We, we do things that are out of bounds with God. How is it then that you and I are brought to the gate of heaven? How do we enter into that gate? By what right do we have? Our sinful flesh coming into the righteous presence of God, the holiness of God. How is it that someone like me who's done the things that I do How do we come in? See, what happens is we, we step back and we look at this passage and we see the fullness of the beauty of what God re- reveals to us here. See, there's seven different titles given. As we go through the book of John, we're going to find that that magic number is seven. There's seven different signs that are given. There's seven I am statements. In this passage, there's seven different titles attributed to the person of Jesus. John the Baptist call him the Lamb of God in verse 36. The two disciples call him Rabbi in verse 38. Andrew calls him Messiah in verse 41. Philip calls him Jesus of Nazareth in verse 45. Nathaniel calls him Son of God and King of Israel in verse 49. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The two that stand out to us this morning are the Son of God and Son of Man. That Jesus fills both of those things fully. That he checked the boxes, as it were, of, of godness and manness. He was both of those things. He was fully God. That there was no part of him that was lacking any part of deity. But he was also fully man. He had two arms and two legs and eyelashes like you and I do. Jesus was both of these things. See, the Son of God became the Son of Man. Jesus was both God and man, and he went to the cross and died a human death. It made a way for us humans like Jesus to be reconciled to God, to go through the gateway into heaven because Jesus Christ did it first. Through his righteous life, he paid the sinful penalty of his own death so that by faith you and I could take on his righteousness. We could lay down our sinfulness and we could come into God's presence with confidence this morning. Isn't that the good news? Isn't that the good news of God's abundant, lavish grace? It's not just for these generations of people descended from Isaac who were law keepers. Now it's for everyone who has faith in Christ. See, what happens this morning is that God ushers us into the presence of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what he does is he makes worshipers become witnesses. He gives us a full view of the deity of Jesus Christ so that we become worshipers and then our voice might be used as witnesses. See, worship fuels our witness. Each of these disciples in chapter 1 beheld God and became a worshiper in the face of Jesus Christ. And thus, each in turn became an effective witness. And it's my experience this morning that the best salespeople are those who genuinely believe in their product. You ever meet a salesperson who doesn't like what they sell? It doesn't go well, right? Right? If we are to be adequate witnesses, we must first be worshipers. Daniel Montgomery says it this way. He says, this is the natural movement of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. The gospel comes to us in order to move through us. It comes to us, it transforms us, it makes us worshipers, and then it moves through us for God's kingdom purpose. This is what we see in passages like 2 Corinthians 5. We all know 2 Corinthians 5.17. A new creation. The old things have gone, the new things have come. We know that, but it moves on to verse 20 where we're told that we're now ambassadors of Christ's ministers of reconciliation but first we had to be reconciled it stands out to me this morning that when we look about jesus here when we look at the words of christ here jesus isn't shy about who he is he makes bold proclamations about himself he is the ladder to heaven. He's the means of man's restoration with God. He looks at Peter and he says, You're no longer Peter, now you're Cephas. Jesus invites us to these bold proclamations about himself to bear witness to it, to become worshipers, and then bear witness. See, here's the question for us this morning Are we bearing witness? Are we bearing witness? What happens when we witness without being worshipers? does it look like for us to be those who, who want to speak about Christ, but not have a heart that worships Christ? Brennan Manning says that it's like passing out brochures to a place we've never been. We use that term authentic a lot, don't we? We talk about authentic this and authentic that. We try to be authentic in our Christian lives. And the truth is, the moment that you set out to be authentic, you immediately aren't. Isn't that the irony of it? Christian witness that doesn't start with worship lacks authenticity. Authenticity. It traffics in something that it hasn't experienced. Witness without worship is like that Rolex watch. It really wasn't very costly and isn't all that impressive. See, true interactions with the real Jesus, they get us talking. They give us something to speak about. True interactions with the real Jesus open our mouths to speak true interactions with the real jesus motivate us to take the gospel to to other people when we see the real thing the gateway to heaven we want to speak up c.s lewis talks about we always praise things that are praiseworthy it's the reason we write songs about our lovers or why we paint paintings or write books or do whatever lovely things are worth speaking up about And witness starts with the hard work of getting my sinful heart to see Christ as lovely again and again and again. It's doing the difficult work of preaching the gospel to myself, saying, I don't deserve mercy, but I've received mercy in Christ. Some of us, we think about witness as this scary thing, we have nightmares. I remember speaking one time to a dear brother in Christ, and he looked me in the eye, and he just said, I just want you to know that this conversation about witness scares me more than anything. It doesn't need to be this scary. It's merely speaking about what Jesus has done for us and in us. You know, before, as we've talked about mission, we've described mission as as an intentional living with our friends and neighbors and relatives with an infectious love for jesus christ see the the best witness comes from those who most authentically worship and so your concern shouldn't be uh, what apologetic practices do i need to know what things do i need to know what informations do i need to impart what kind of things do i need to speak your your first concern needs to be is my heart trusting in the lord jesus christ Does it see Jesus as beautiful and desirable and worthy of sharing with these other people? I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to sit down with a friend, and he was describing to me how he came to know Jesus. And it was a really fun time because honestly... I love hearing these stories about how God draws people to himself, and he was kind of sharing his story, and he got to this point where he said, you know, I kept seeing this guy around town, and he was a a UPS driver, and every time I saw him, he stood out, because he just had this goofy smile on his face everywhere I saw him. He just looked like an idiot walking around, grinning, you know, and being happy, and finally, he he has an opportunity to to meet this individual, and he says, so how are you doing? He's making small talk with him, and he says, you know, I always see you around town, and, and I see that you're always smiling. Why are you smiling all the time? And the guy bears witness. He says, well, the Lord Jesus has saved me from my sin. And I guess it's just kind of a simple thing that I have a lot of reason to smile. And that was the end of the conversation. It was one of a string of testimonies that were brought into this individual's life of men and women who had faith in Jesus Christ and were inviting him to faith. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened is he came to see the Lord as beautiful and came to know the grace of God in Christ. Isn't it funny how such a simple thing like your attitude can have an impact for God's kingdom purpose? And I say that as one this weekend who hasn't always had a great attitude. Sometimes Christian witness can be just doing Christian things or things Christianly, having an attitude that is a a pleasing aroma to those around us or the aroma of death to others. Sometimes Christian witness is just standing up for our convictions to say this is why we don't do these things or this is why we think this is wrong. Sometimes it's articulating the truth of the gospel of jesus christ but it always calls people to faith in jesus eventually there's no being saved outside of the message of jesus sacrificial death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins some of us we've so escalated the conversation that witness has become this jarring scary thing and maybe it's time that we trust the lord to bring his kingdom It's time that we trust Jesus to have the interactions with His people and that we view ourselves just as the Andrews, the messengers that bring people to Christ. I want to pray this morning that God gives us a confidence in His message, in His purpose in the world, that He would make us active, articulate, effective witnesses in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray exactly that. We pray for Your empowerment. That as your spirit resides in us, that we might be able to faithfully articulate the life-saving gospel of Jesus. That by his death, we no longer deserve death. By his life, we have the fullness of life. So God, I ask that you would make us effective witnesses for your kingdom purpose. Allow us to articulate Your message to unbelieving people in a way that honors and glorifies Your name. Father, we pray this to Your eternal glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.